Well, welcome back, everyone. We have a really special guest today, Morgan Ziegers. Am I pronouncing that right, Morgan Ziegers? Ziegers. Zagers, okay. Um, we're really excited to have her on. She's going to be speaking at the Texas Youth Summit as well. September 18th and 19th is when that is in the Woodlands here in Montgomery County. So we're excited about that. And uh, Morgan, she founded Young Americans Against Socialism. But before we talk about her organization, we're going to talk about a little bit about her life. And uh, Morgan, really great to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah. So you're uh, 23 now, correct? Yes, I am. Oh, awesome. So uh, where were you, what were you doing when you were 17, 18 in high school, um, trying to figure out what you wanted to do later on? I mean, where, where was your mind back then and what were you thinking about back then? Well, I actually try and think about that a lot of how did I get to this point of being so strong in my convictions for conservatism and the values that I have now. And back in high school, it was kind of a dichotomy. I was actually reading books like The Feminine Mystique. I was looking up to people like Hillary Clinton and a lot of the more liberal feminine icons of American politics because I just saw it as empowering and inspiring. I didn't really understand Benghazi. I didn't understand the politics of the time, um, but I was just kind of coming into the community there. And most importantly, what I was doing is I was a veterans officer of, or I was an officer in the ladies auxiliary of the veterans of foreign wars in my hometown, because my dad's a colonel in the military. So he served in Operation Iraqi Freedom and on 9-11, and that qualifies my family to join in. So I joined the ladies auxiliary when I was, I think, 16, and I immediately became an officer. And going to those meetings every month, collaborating on how we could fundraise money, holding bake sales. I remember I had my soccer team bake baked goods and we sold them in October for breast cancer with the ladies auxiliary. I always did the parades. I was the one who sold the poppies and I worked really hard to get maybe $300 would be my goal each parade. But um, that's what really got me interested in community activism. And from there on, being in upstate New York, there's a lot of uh, political tension between upstaters and downstaters, between upstaters and Governor Cuomo and his corrupt Albany Democrats. So there's just a lot going on in the upstate versus downstate communities. And I, I started to jump in from the veterans affairs and advocacy into uh, New York state politics. Wow. Uh, did you play any sports in high school? I did. I did. And I think this actually helped me out quite a lot. I hope that my children one day do play sports because I think it gives you a great foundation of values of hard work of failure and determination and getting back up in eighth grade. When I was in middle school, I got plucked to be on the varsity team. And so I was tiny. I mean, I'm tiny right now. I'm five feet tall and I'm like 115 pounds. But back then I was tinier and my legs were like this thin and I had, um, I was probably a hundred pounds and I was going up against these senior high school girls and I got pushed around, beaten up, but I had five years on the varsity team there. I had five years on the um, varsity track team. I was a pole vaulter and I weightlifted. And my favorite thing that I did in high school actually was um, a weightlifter. And so I did the football weightlifting competition. I was one of the first girls to do that. And I beat one guy at the squats. So I'm pretty proud of myself for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. How much did you squat? I think it was 205, and then my overall max has been 215. That's impressive. Very good. <laughs> um, <laughs> more than some guys, for sure, so that's good. That's good. Okay, mm -hmm. well, so going into college, um, how did you pay for school? And, um, and tell us a little bit about your family background. Uh, you come from a conservative home or no? 
Uh, my parents are conservative and we didn't really talk about politics when I was growing up. But now that I am involved in politics, we definitely um, get pretty political at the dinner table in a good way. We talk about politics. We talk about issues. I'm conservative, but they never push their values on me. I came to my conservative values on my own. And my dad's a colonel, like I said. My mom's a physical therapist and she worked a really hard, hard schedule trying to make money in her own job and be her own her own woman but then also come to every game that i had every event that i had at school she was just there for me in every way and so that really defined what a family was in modern america to me um but my parents are really supportive and so they always taught me hard work i grew up listening to dave ramsey and when i went to college my biggest concern was the the idea of student debt i didn't want to put myself in that position dave ramsey's all about the power of not putting yourself um, and strapping yourself with the burdensome debt. And so my dad and I really looked at all the options and we found out that American University is actually really patriotic in the sense that they support military families. And so they make it really easy to help you find grants and um, scholarships and other ways to make it more affordable for you to go to school. So I used a bunch of different veterans advocacy scholarships and stuff like that. I had part of the GI Bill um, from my dad's service. And then when I realized that even with all that extra effort I put into finding ways to pay for college, I still was going to come up short and I, I wasn't going to be able to afford a fourth year. It just, it would really push me back and hold me back um, from growing in my twenties. And so I went to my guidance counselor at school and I said, I've been doing a lot of research and I think I can get my degree in three years. If I take these one day classes on the weekends, if I take these online classes at night, if I do this, 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 and I push it all into three years, can you help me so that I make sure I'm doing it right? And I was shocked. She looked at me, Christian, and she was like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you really become the person you're meant to be in your fourth year of college. Do you really want to take that away from yourself and prevent yourself from growing? And I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but like $70,000, I don't think it's worth be becoming, you know, a better person in my fourth year of college. If you look at the the um, math on it, I don't think I would be willing to spend $70,000 for that. And um, so right. I made the decision to take night classes, to take um, one credit classes on the weekends, anything I could do to graduate early in my school made it very difficult to do so. And that was a big lesson for me. Um, but with that, I ended up graduating with I think like $15,000 in debt still, even after all the work that I put in. And so that's why I started Zegger's Freedom Flags. It's just a small woodworking business. I learned how to make the wooden flags on YouTube and I started selling locally at veterans fundraisers and stuff like that. And I started paying off my student loans that way. And it's grown wow. into a into business. How resourceful and how did you learn how to, to create or craft those flags? Were you always uh, very artistic or uh, did you just find some inspiration on YouTube or how did you how did you figure that out well my dad and I have always been pretty crafty and so he's yeah. made like hike wood sticks uh, we're in the Adirondacks so we hike all the time in the mountains where we live um, but we've always been pretty crafty at things and we have wooden signs that we make we burn wood we do all these little crafts and he saw a video about how to make a wooden American flag it wasn't very hard it was maybe twenty dollars of materials and all I really had to do was learn how to do the stars by hand and so that's what takes the longest you can paint it and burn it and form it together but you really have to have really steady hand to carve 50 stars with a Dremel tool. So that's what took me three hours per flag. And 
um, it, it really made me very patient and it made me a very yeah. dedicated little business owner. So um, that was a lot because when you're getting a lot of orders and you're trying to expand the business, you have to realize that you're going to be in the workshop for 12 hours a day carving with loud noise and it, it can get a little frustrating at times, but it is all worth it in the end to keep growing. Wow. And you're, so you're still producing these today or? Um... Well, I kind of automated myself out of my own job. Um, I, we ended up buying a CNC because as we grew, it went from just community owner uh, community orders to we would get entire fire department orders. And so 30 flags at a time. And the first time we got one of those, um, I looked at my dad and I said, I can't hand carve 30 flags. I can't do it in the time that they needed yeah. it by. And they actually needed it. They ordered it, I think, two months before the due date. And it was due in early November of my election season when I ran for state assembly. And so it was my last two months of the campaign. I had to hand carve 30 flags. I ended up spending about $2,000 for a CNC machine. And the CNC machine now does my job of carving. So it's it's great. I've automated myself out of my own job. <laughs> well, I think it's really impressive that you started a company at so such an early age and, and you were resourceful and figured out a way to pay for school. And I'll just comment that I've used Dave Ramsey too, and I think it's fantastic. I mean, just common sense principles of living beneath your means and working hard and paying off debt through the snowball effect. and. Um, I have a little chart still that I use in my room, so I, I think that, um, you know, I still look at it and glean from it from time to time, and so uh, I think that's excellent. And so started the company and more than paid off your school debt, and I want to touch on you running for state assembly. So how did that come about, and uh, how did you, at, at 21, earn the support of your community and, and, and those around you? That's a good question. Not a lot of people ask, like, how did you make it happen? Because it's it's pretty funny. I was pretty resourceful. Um, but I was in college at the time. I was 19 when I started talking to my local GOP committee. And so I don't know how it is in Texas, but we have town committees and there's members for each neighborhood and district. And then you have the county committee and then you have the state committee. And so to get the endorsement of some to run for something, you need all of the towns to vote for you. And then you have a county committee, committee meeting, county votes for you to endorse you. Um, and then you can move forward as the candidate. And so I was talking to my local GOP and there's not a lot of people up here. It's not like Texas. I mean, it's upstate New York where 1 million people have moved out in the last 10 years because we're the highest tax state in the country when you consider state and local tax burden. We're one of the worst uh, regulated states. We're one of the most corrupt states. We rank the highest in all the worst categories. And so everybody here goes to Florida or Texas and because they want to live that free life. And the beautiful thing about upstate New York is you have the Finger Lakes, you have the Adirondacks, you have Lake George, you have Saratoga Springs with the racetrack. If you like cities, you can go down to New York City for the day. There's a, it's a beautiful state, and we really could be the best state in the country if we had better leadership. So a lot of conservatives are willing to stick it out and keep fighting for the future of this great state. Um, it's just they make it so difficult, so difficult. Um, so not a lot of people are in politics around here, and they found out that I was involved in the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and I was in the Ladies Auxiliary. They found out that I was conservative, and they started asking me to consider to do things. The first question I got was, would you run for supervisor of the town? And I was 19. And so this at the time, I was like sitting down with my town supervisor and my town GOP chairman. And to me, they were like superstars. I was starstruck to be able to like be getting coffee with them. It was, I was really honored and I didn't even know what to say. I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to look stupid. And the town supervisor looks at me and says, would you run next time? Would you run for me? 
And I was flabbergasted. I didn't want to upset these great men. I didn't want to offend them by saying no. But at the same time, I'm 19 and I shouldn't be running a town. You know what I mean? A lot of people that are younger, they think, oh, I'm going to run and be mayor of the town and then I'm going to run for a state office and then I'm going to run for Congress and then I'm going to be president and they have this beautiful dream. I never thought of running for office like that or running for office at all. And next thing you know, this guy is asking me to run for supervisor of the town, which is equivalent to a mayor. And I didn't know how to tell him no. And so I did a lot of research and I, I said, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But what I do feel comfortable in is going against Andrew Cuomo and going against the corrupt people in the state, the state house. And so what do you think about that? And people were pretty supportive of it from the beginning. And so from then on, I started what I did is I tried to be creative with it. I didn't know a lot of people. I didn't know all the chairs. I didn't know all the committee people. I got the list of the hundreds of people that were involved in the GOP. I added them all on Facebook. And I started posting really cute conservative stuff like a picture of me on my Harley with my dad, a picture of me apple picking, a picture of me on the farm, a picture of me four wheeling. Because I wanted to show these people that I just friended, these complete strangers, that I was a really great, wholesome person. And I wanted them to get an idea of what I was all about before they even met me. And then I started going to the GOP events and the Independence Party events and the Conservative Party events because I needed all of those endorsements. And I started meeting these people for the first time and they knew me from Facebook. And I was like, yes, it worked. And so I was building up that reputation as a complete newcomer to all of this. And by the time I got to the endorsement meetings, I had gone to everybody's events. I had shown respect to them. I had paid to get in the door. I had shown them that I was going to support them and that I really was dedicated to this. I, I kind of had to beat back that bad reputation of just my age and what they probably assumed of me by hearing, oh, this young teenager's trying to run for office. I had to work around that. And so by the time endorsements came around, I was a senior in college and I was in my last semester and I ended up getting unanimous endorsements from all 13 towns and it was a real honor. And there was even a few times where we had older men that had stepped up to say, I'm gonna run for this, I'm gonna try and get the endorsement, I'm just gonna show up at the endorsement meeting. And I had town chairs call me who are decades older than me and they said, you know, Morgan, this person reached out to me and of course I'm not gonna tell them that they can't run. But what I did tell them is that you have our vote right now and that you've earned it and that you have shown that you're a serious candidate. So we will be going with you. And that just, it really meant a lot because I spent a year trying to earn their support and build up a reputation for myself. Wow. What an incredible feat at, at such an early age. So um, how did you build up a volunteer team, a, a grassroots support? I mean, um, you hadn't had any experience with that from what I understand. Maybe you've been on a high school team, but uh, organizing people on a campaign. What was that experience and process like? Yeah, and that's a good question because I had never been on a full-time campaign. I've never been through a full campaign season even. I didn't know what it was like. I volunteered. I've gone for like a volunteer day. I've done a few things for Congresswoman Stefanik in her first and second election seasons. and But that was all just one or two days every once in a while just to help out. I had never experienced the whole process. And so I ended up reaching out to the Teenage Republicans Club. And I mean, these people are all a few years younger than me, but they're all in high school still. And I reached out to them and I said, do you want to join me? And I ended up building this little team of like 10 high school volunteers. Yeah. Everything. We went everywhere together. I had buddies. Um, one of them, my favorite one is Preston, and we're still close today. And Meg still runs the Republican Club of her high school, but they're now involved so much, and we learned so much together. And so they were really my campaign team. And then, of course, my family helped out a ton. It, I really relied on my friends and my family. 
um, to do it because for petition season in New York State, you have to get hundreds of signatures for each party that you're trying to get on the ballot of. And so I graduated in May, I petitioned in June, and I got on the ballot. And then from June through November, it's just hardcore campaigning. We knocked on 600 doors a week with wow. me and my parents, my, my sister and my other family that would come up and visit to help me. And then of course, with my high school volunteers. And so it was a really uh, scrappy team, but we made it work. And in the end, I ended up losing by 13% and people were shocked in the a good way and i was so disappointed i thought i was gonna win you know i, I gave my heart and soul to it and so i thought i was gonna win and when i lost by 13 percent, everybody was congratulating me and they were saying great job and i realized it's because they probably thought i wasn't going to win or i definitely wasn't going to win but they thought i was going to lose quite badly so um it was a surprise in a different way well i think um you were as the as the quote goes the, the the man or the woman in your case in the arena i mean better to have fought than to have sat on the sidelines and so uh, there's a lot of people that probably wish they could have done what you did but they just you know didn't have the the fortitude or the courage to to, to get in the arena so uh, props to you for doing that at such an early age and i hope that at some point you run again i think you'd be great <laughs> thank you i i I think about it sometimes because people do ask if I'm going to do it and uh, the Daily Caller, I do weekly interviews with them and they always put in the polls now, do you want Morgan to run for office? And I say, no, <laughs> no, please don't do that to me. I actually love what I do now with this nonprofit. I feel like I found my, my place in the movement and I feel like I can have an impact and love what I do. And so I'm really thankful for that. I, I'm not really a political person. I'm more dedicated to educating myself and spreading the message and using marketing tools. That's what I really love. And so I really have found my place and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And people ask all the time about the running for office. They commend me for it. And to be honest, all the young people out there, I hate talking about it. I'm embarrassed by it. And that's something right. that I have to live with. People say, you should write a book about it. You should, you know, do a, a tutorial on how to run for office and stuff. And I can't even write a book like that because it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to right. talk about it. It hurts back on it. I'm still not yeah. a pl at a place where I can accept that kind of failure. And so it's a learning process and um, not everything goes your way. And so I have to look back and kind of be embarrassed by some of the things I did or maybe what I said in a debate, stuff like that. But um, you get through it and then you come out on top. Well, uh, what a, uh, nevertheless, what a, what a great accomplishment. And uh, you touched on this, but I really want to go into the organization that you founded. Um, Young Americans Against Socialism, how old is it now exactly? And um, I know that you launched not too, too long ago, but maybe some of that time was taken away because of the pandemic. But um, tell us about the organization that you founded, and uh, I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions on that in a second. Yeah, well, I founded Young Americans Against Socialism uh, last August, so we are in our one-year anniversary month, I guess you could say. And it's been a whirlwind. It's not what I expected. And that's, I mean that in the best way possible. Um, after I lost, I had the bug, you know, I was already too mad. I was too involved. I could not give it up. And I was so worried for the future of the country because in November, 2018, as I was losing, AOC was getting elected to Congress. The squad was getting elected to Congress and democratic socialism was all over the news. And so at first I thought, I'm done. I'm out of politics. This is not for me. These people are so negative. It's so dramatic. It's like high school drama club, all these things. And I couldn't help it, though, because I still wanted to be involved. And so I actually got a job in Boston at an advertising agency. And I left New York. I moved to Boston, got an apartment in January. I did this all very fast. And I started working in advertising. And I was making 
I was basically scheduling commercials for national TV for a few clients. And every time I did it, they would say, here's how many millions of views you got. And here's how many millions of people saw the commercial and were impacted and all these, all these insights. And I just said, I am working so hard. I'm working nine to seven every night and then walking a half an hour back to my apartment where it's lonely and I'm sad. And I feel like I'm not making a difference as the country is electing socialists into the office. And so I just worked really, really hard on what would be the equation to fix this. And I found a lot of inspiration in the work that I was doing in advertising of directly targeting and getting creative with how to reach specific groups of people and audiences with specific content. Um, and I also found a study this is what I based everything around, this concept of peer rationale. And it shows that professors and parents were really good at passing down hardcore facts, but it really um, makes a big difference to hear a peer make the case for an issue. And um, what really makes a young person understand an issue and understand why it's important to even understand it in the beginning is when a peer makes that case. Uh, for a lot of issues in, in the education system, we have students just memorizing facts to ace the test and then they forget it. And so uh, the study showed that when peers explain it to you, you actually remember it, you understand why it's important in the first place and why it's important for the future. Um, and so I wanted to take that concept of peer rationale and peer-to-peer -peer communication into anti-socialist messaging and then take that concept of uh, micro-targeting with advertising tactics and, and getting creative into the conservative movement and into the freedom movement. And so I started YAS and what we do is we interview people from socialist countries and we're transitioning into interviewing younger and younger people to bring in that peer-to-peer -peer element. Um, but we interview them, we ask them very emotional questions. We ask them to talk about their day-to-day -day life, what it was like to flee, why they fled, and what it's like to be in America now. And the videos did so well from the beginning. We got a million views on the first one in 24 hours. We got 4 million views on the next one, 10 million views on the next one, and it, it's just kind of growing from there. And so I got on Fox and Friends after a couple weeks, and we started doing national radio and TV and, and documentaries. I got invited to speak all across the country at National Tea Party Rally and Council for National Policy and these college campuses like NYU and Syracuse, and it just exploded. So I gave my two weeks at my job. I transitioned to doing YAS full time. I moved out of my apartment, put everything in a storage unit. And I just hit the road and I lived out of a suitcase until the pandemic. And that's kind of where, <laughs> that's kind of where it halted, but we still kept making content and we have 10 new testimonies coming out between September and November that we're really excited about. Wow. And the experiences that you had at that advertising firm uh, really helped you think through more critically what you would be doing with uh, YAS because um, it's, that's so interesting that, you know, it wasn't a wasted time uh, because you learned so much time, even though it might have been a difficult season where you were away from your family and your friends and you were doing a new venture. Um, it was a time where you grew because you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now if it wasn't for that season. Um, interesting thought there. How do you fund an organization uh, like the one that you're running now i mean you you i mean obviously you need small dollar contributors but usually i mean i know this from experience you you have to have some big donors too so what, what does that look like yeah and that's something i've never been through before of course i had to fundraise for my campaign for assembly but that was just for my local friends my my peers in the community and and that was all smaller donations and so i've never been in that world of high dollar prospecting and everything between that and and small dollar fundraising but um what happened is i had never gotten a donation from yes we had some um 
we had a friend put seed money in, like a little bit of seed money to make the first videos. But what happened is the first interview was Buck Sexton. And then the second interview was Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck had me on his show. Um, and I went on for five minutes to talk about how I was going to start interviewing socialist survivors. And we were going to tell their stories to educate my generation. And all of a sudden, my phone was right next to me in my apartment. And it was just ping, 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 ping of these $10, $25, $10, $25 donations. And I'm looking at it going, what the heck? And I start crying when we reach $200. I look back and I start laughing at this, but I did. I started crying when we got to $200 because I've never had that yeah. kind of support. I didn't know people were going to donate from a radio show. Just hearing a stranger talking about this mission, it just wasn't what I was expecting. I didn't even consider how I was going to really fundraise for it. And all of a sudden we got 200 bucks. We fundraised thousands that day from a five minute interview on Glenn Beck because I was a young American telling a group of probably older Americans listening to Glenn Beck that I was gonna fight for the future of this country with education and I was gonna use a tactic that hasn't been used before. And so that just, that day completely changed my concept of what this could be, what I could grow it into. And of course, when I went on Fox and Friends, the same thing happened, but like tenfold in terms of the amount of donations we got. And so that solidified us and that gave us a great base of monthly donors that give 10, $25 um, a month. But what really changed was when I started going into 2020, I said, I really want to try and get into that family foundation kind of stuff. I want to explore how do you get $5,000, $10,000 donations? What does that even, how does that even start? And then when the pandemic happened, especially, I had a lot of people reach out and say, Morgan, I'm so sorry. I've been supporting you from the beginning, but I have to pause my monthly contribution. And we rely on the monthly contributions. We rely on that to keep going. And so when I started doing these emails, I realized we'll go down and diversify our funding base. And so I started doing grant applications, family foundation um, reach outs, and I'm not doing it professionally. I don't know if maybe there's a better way out there, but I am learning from scratch. And so I will literally go online, try and find a cell phone number, an email. I, I go and I look just for the generic info at blankfamilyfoundation.org. I get these emails and I send just a basic pitch. I say, here's our, our videos. We're going to do this in the next year. We're going to this. These are our, our goals. These are our key learnings. Would you be interested in talking with me a little bit more about this? And it's actually working. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now is my 2020 goal was to get those first family foundation donations, to get that uh, monthly donation program even stronger and to get those individual high dollar donations. Um, and we're, we're doing a good job with it. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the team and we're adapting and learning as we go. And so anyone can go to yas.org or correct or dot com yeah, or dot org. So go to yas.org, but the problem is that's hard to say in an interview. So we also bought fightsocialism.org because it's so much better to say in an interview of go to fightsocialism.org and donate here. So we kind of bought that one too. And you can go to fightsocialism.org to donate, or you can join us. We have internship programs. We have, um, you can join the coalition and just be an activist and help us make content. Or of course, you can also be a writing contributor because we have um, a writing program. So there's a bunch of ways you can get involved and see our content all on our website. Awesome. And so tell me about the videos, a little bit more about the videos that you create, um, going deeper into that. Um, how do you, I mean, do you do this all in house or do you do this, um, per contract or how does that work right now? And, uh, you've produced some really excellent videos, so please share. Well, thank you. And, and I'll be upfront with everybody because this is a, a youth, 
um, audience. And so I want to just be honest and, and share how we've traveled through everything. And what we did in the beginning is we basically would pay someone per video. And so we had a videographer that we hired who would travel with me to the location of the person. And then we'd film them in their, their home or we'd film them outside. And then we'd travel back and, and he would produce it. And then we wanted to transition into more of let's go to one location, find as many people as possible that we can interview and film them all. And then we'll have a month or two months worth of raw footage to turn into content that will last many. And so that was really exciting. That was kind of in the fall at time where we started transitioning into that. Um, but the pandemic really messed that up. And so what I'm trying to do now and we're in that phase of a nonprofit where we can start to do that is to try and bring people on that can dedicate more time to the nonprofit. So it's not like we're just hiring out for every project. We don't have to pay people per video or per project. We're just paying them to be a part of the team and so that they have the financial stability to be able to contribute more. And so that's what we're trying to do now. And luckily we're in a place where we can do that. Um, but we have a place in Connecticut. We've been a little struggling with this pandemic. We had to get creative because we used to travel to their locations and there's all these travel restrictions, especially in the Northeast for where you can go and quarantining and all that jazz. And so now what we're doing is our producer's name is Gina now, and she does all of our videos. She's done all of the 10 that are coming up in September. Um, she created this like catfish style of production. And so I don't know if you've seen that show, but it's that show where like the guy tries to catch people who are pretending to be somebody they're not. Um, and so Gina sent me this catfish episode and she was like, look at how they include FaceTime and direct interviews and behind the scenes all into one video. I think we could do this and work around the travel restrictions with COVID. And so that's what we've been doing for the next 10 videos is this combination of different angles and different frames. And we have all of the testifiers, instead of traveling to them, we just give them really clear directions on how to set up their camera in front of them as if we were there. And then we have a whole production process to make sure they talk about all the topics so that it feels like I'm right behind the camera like I usually am. Um, because that's what I really love is being behind the camera, having an honest conversation with someone and just getting those super intricate details out. And, and I don't know if you've seen one, but our best video has 15 million views on it. And I still can't believe this. It's not well produced. It was like one of the first things we did. We didn't even plan out a location. It's in the middle of a park. There's cicadas being super loud in the background. Um, it's really just not well done in that sense, but it got 15 million views because what he's saying wow. in it is so powerful. The story is so powerful. And so that was a big key learning for us that, that what matters most is what they're saying and the lessons that are being passed down. And so Ray talks about how, when he was in Cuba, basically he was beaten by police for having long hair and listening to the Beatles because rock and roll music and that American style was really hated by the Castro regime and that reminded them of the American imperialists. And so he was beaten by police. He talks about eating potatoes for months at a time. He talks about his mother burning furniture to boil potatoes so that they could eat um, instead of just eating the raw potatoes. And then he talks, of course, about his transition from Cuba to America, where he windsurfed for an entire day across the ocean from Cuba to the Florida Keys. and. Um, he ended up making it a few miles offshore, getting picked up by the Coast Guard, brought back to Cuba, filed for asylum, um, and then came to the United States, uh, I think, as a refugee. And so it's a powerful story. And he talks about how he wants to pass down these lessons to young Americans because he's even worried about his kids' future. And so it's just a really powerful story, even though the quality of the content wasn't as or the quality of the production wasn't as good. The content was just mwah, and so it, it did well. And that's what we really want to focus on in storytelling. Wow. 
I, I think I should introduce you to Ted Cruz's father, Rafael Cruz, sometime. He's a mentor of mine, and I've had him on the show before, and uh, I think you'd really enjoy getting to connect with him sometime. So, um, I would love that. Wow. We've, so we've, we've fleshed out your background and your story and how you started your organization, uh, but I really want to touch on just some philosophy and some policy. I see exactly what you're doing with these videos. You're incorporating emotion and you're leveraging the fact that you're a young messenger and that's so important. Um, it's funny that I've, I've, I'll tell you that I've advised Congressman Crenshaw uh, working with him and I remember Marcus and Melanie Luttrell introducing me to Congressman Crenshaw and at first um, you know, he was not in politics and, and I was and so I remember having coffee with him at Starbucks and before he decided to run and, 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 you know, and I was giving him advice, but now it's, it's so funny how the tables have turned because um, just looking at where he's going um, and all of the things that he's done in the last year or two. So I'll just tell you that probably the inspiration to start the youth summit um, really is not Charlie Kirk uh, because I, I wasn't really paying attention to Turning Point USA all too much. It, it's being friends with Dan and watching what he's doing and I've been advising him and I'm on his, on his team. And, and then I also introduced Dan to Dinesh D'Souza. I'm on Dinesh D'Souza's advisory board. So we got together for lunch one day and they were talking about the youth and how important the youth are. And Dan made this point, he said that the messenger really matters. When you're talking about a message, two people can give the identical message, but the messenger really matters. And that's why I think Morgan, uh, what you're doing is so important because you're a young messenger and you've emphasized this in a more academic way at the beginning of the interview um, that that it's important that young people hear from other young people why socialism is wrong and and I think you do that so well and you don't just give uh, a lot of facts and statistics and and this you know broad policy or macroeconomics or the, you incorporate personal stories and you, you leverage emotions so well and I think uh, you being young are, are so important in, in, this, in this equation because you can communicate it better than anyone to someone that's young and uh, you know an up-and-comer um, and, and I, think, I think it's so important that we do have young messengers that are running for office that are starting organizations that are moving and shaking and, and that um, older people fund these younger people because the younger people don't necessarily always have the money, but they have the energy. And, and that's really what changes a culture and what changes a society is the young people. And, and so it was, I'll tell you, it was, it was watching Dan and what he's done with his youth summit. I went to his one last year and then I decided to do one, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after his and I texted him, I said, can you come to mine? And so I put together the youth summit within two months and it was just really quickly thrown together, but it worked out pretty good. Um, and this one's taken a full year. And so, I mean, I took my experience, I've worked on a number of campaigns, presidential races, uh, raising money, and I raised the money to do a youth summit, you know, a, a, a bigger magnitude this time. And so um, we're doing it at a, at a church, so it won't be shut down, thank God. Um, and, and I'm excited about it. And, and that's the one thing that I've learned is that the younger messenger really, really does matter. And, and so, um, with that being said, I want to focus on how you decided that you were so passionate about fighting socialism and what is socialism for those of 
and that are listening that don't really quite understand or they can communicate what it is. They know it's bad, but why is it bad and how did you find out it was bad? Okay, loaded question, but my favorite kind of question. So um, we have a situation right now where the polls show 70% of young Americans would currently vote for a socialist. Yeah. A lot of people look at that and they go, oh my gosh, we're doomed. The future of the country is basically over already. What do we do? Uh, is there any way out of this? And I say that's actually a pretty positive thing for me to see because there's no way in heck that 70% of young Americans want to seize the means of production. And 70% of young Americans probably don't even know what that means. And in reality, we have to look at what the definition of socialism is in the dictionary. It's when the government takes over industry, private business, private property, seizes the means of production. And the term seize is used because nobody voluntarily gives up their private property or business. It has to be forcibly taken. And so we're in a problem right now where you have democratic socialists and the democratic socialists of america and aoc the squad they all keep pushing this narrative that their version of democratic socialism would make us like nordic europe well it's a little frustrating because at the same time they hate capitalism they bring they freak out about capitalism all the time they attack it all the time and we have to address this in so many different angles. It makes it very hard to communicate coming from our point of view. I don't know if you've noticed this, Christian. It's incredibly hard from the position where we're in to fight back right now because the left is not operating on a base of reality. It's not like this is a debate of, oh, socialism versus capitalism. They're pretending to take on values that are not really theirs. They're lying about what they believe in. They're using deceptive tactics. And it's very confusing for many people. If we look at Nordic Europe, it's capitalist. They have big welfare programs, really high personal taxes, um, but in the end, at the end of the day, they support private business and they really rely on the wealth created from that, that private business. Um, in Venezuela and in socialist countries like the kind that, would, that America would turn into if we adopted the policies of the democratic socialists in the United States, they actually have the government people seize the means of production, nationalize industries, and implement socialism that leads to communism. And so that's what we're facing right now is you have a wolf in sheep's clothing and the sheep or, and the wolf is continuing to lie about its true intentions. And so I'm in a position with Young Americans Against Socialism to spread the truth as much as we possibly can. That what happens in every socialist uprising, every Marxist uprising, is the socialist leaders deny that they are socialists. They call themselves democratic socialists. Fidel Castro did it too. Fidel Castro called himself a progressive, said he was for social justice, said he was um, a democratic humanitarian, a lot of really crazy stuff. But in the end, he ended up being a communist dictator. And so when you hear these fluff terms from the same socialist or from socialists now in America, it's hard for young Americans to have red flags go off in their head because they're so confused. They're ignorant on the issue. And I believe they deserve the truth. And so a big case that I make is that if we were properly taught in middle school and high school how socialist leaders come to power by promising free for all programs and things that sound good, like a utopian society, by saying they're going to advocate for social justice, and by saying that we're going to go and make the rich pay their fair share, they make all these grandiose plans and, and promises, but it never really ends up that way. And so that's how a Marxist uprising starts. We also have Antifa, Black Lives Matter. Uh, throughout history, all Marxist uprisings have had to have some sort of grassroots group that does the dirty work and really fear mongers and pushes the population into conforming to the left's agenda. 
the Bolsheviks of the USSR did that. You had the Chavistas and the Colectivos of Venezuela, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and in America now you have Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So we're seeing a lot of repeated patterns of what's happened throughout history. And I think the best thing we can do is use these firsthand testimonies from young people in Venezuela who say, I listened to Chavez and Maduro say that they weren't going to um, do anything terrible, that they were going to be fair leaders, that we could elect them out if we wanted to. But as soon as Chavez was elected in, he changed the constitution, seized the means of production and ruined the country to ensure that he couldn't be brought out of power. So it's these personal connections from firsthand uh, experiences that are going to, I, I believe, open the eyes of young people. Wow. Um, and, and for those that would argue that Nordic Europe, I, I mean, I have a dual citizenship to Norway, so I'm, I'm part Norwegian. Um, if it works in Europe, they say, I think Bernie Sanders says this all the time, if it works in, in places like Sweden and Denmark and Norway, um, why can't it work here? And what's the difference between um, our country and, 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 and it not working there, but it also, you know, I mean, looking at what happened in Venezuela, why is it that, um, that it couldn't, it couldn't go the way of Europe? I mean, can you answer that yeah. in, in a clear way? Yeah. And, and so in Nordic Europe, like I mentioned earlier, it's capitalists. They have respect for private property and private business. Yeah. And for the left in America to say, if we get rid of capitalism and if we adopt our policies, we'll end up like Nordic Europe. It's a complete lie. It's just a blatant lie. And so my question is, how come the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, on their website, it clearly states that they want to get rid of private business in the long term. They just don't have a plan for it yet. And so in the short term, they're going to increase taxes and regulation to slowly gain control over these businesses. That's what's happened in Venezuela. It's not what happened in Nordic. And so if you look at countries like Sweden, they actually tried socialism from the 70s to the 90s. And then they realized that that was a complete failure, a bad idea. And they started repealing it. They started giving power to private businesses again and uh, supporting private property. They lowered taxes, lowered regulation. They focused on school choice. They started privatizing their retirement program to be less like Social Security and more like a private savings um, plan for individual citizens. And for me, it's the biggest lie of American politics. And especially when Bernie Sanders was still running for president, it was the biggest lie in American politics for the election. The fact that Bernie Sanders and his seize the means of production type socialists were saying we're going to end up like Nordic Europe. It's a it's just a complete lie. And it's very wrong and misleading for them to continue to push this. Hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. And um, one of the things that I appreciate about, appreciate about you, Morgan, is you're able to talk to people in a calm and collected manner. And um, and you're able to just talk in a very practical way. And um, one of the questions I would have is, is, I mean, have you ever met a communist? And what does a communist look like? I, I don't know if anyone um, that I know of has met a self-described communist. You hear people talk about the word socialist now, and um, AOC is a self-described socialist. But what's a communist look like? And, and how does... And would you agree that socialism is the economic vehicle of communism and it, and it leads to that eventually? Yes. Uh, to answer your last question first, socialism is that required economic step to be able to achieve communism. Even Lenin said that once you seize the means of production and you can control people economically and financially, you are able to control every aspect of their life. And I'll try and fit this in quick, but a lot of the testimonies we have coming up, they talk about how when they have family members that work at a government now controlled company or for a government office, there are people in the HR 
departments of these government-run companies that will say, are you wearing enough red? They keep track of who's wearing red to show support of communism in Venezuela. Who has pictures of Che in their office? Who showed up to the last government rally? Who voted for who? And so that's the kind of control that they have over you financially when they control all aspects of the economy. They can control parts of who you vote for, what you're doing in your free time. Are you complying and are you supporting the party in power? So that's it's, it's a slippery slope once you start giving power to the government in that way. But um, back to your, your question about what does a communist look like, first of all, the hammer and sickle sign is all over the Antifa shields that we're seeing in Portland that we saw um, in all of these crazy Antifa rallies throughout the last year. And that's very concerning to me. They claim to be the social justice warriors, but then they also have a hammer and sickle sign whenever they're going out and fighting with the police of this country who are just trying to keep law and order. But I don't know if you've heard this story, Christian. When I was in school at American University, my roommate was a communist. And so that's usually how I start my speeches is I tell the story of my commie roommate. And the scary part is that she was just an average American girl. She had like blonde hair, blue eyes, super bubbly, this beautiful, beautiful woman. And I walk into her room the first day to introduce myself. And there's a poster on the wall of Mao Zedong, Lenin, Stalin, Karl Marx, and Fidel Castro. And I said, what is that? And, and she looked at me and she said, oh, I'm a communist. And I was shocked. And so we had a lot of talks that year. We really conversed because I'm a proud conservative and she knew that. And we really wanted to understand each other. The biggest lesson that I learned from her is that she was so well-intentioned. And she still, even though she went through the entire U.S. education system, she had a poster of mass murderers and dictators on her wall. And she really thought she was helping the poor people and those suffering in this country. And so it just blew my mind that she could consider herself a communist. And the the biggest lesson that I learned from her though is that she explained to me that conservatives are mean. People like me are mean because we say we care about something and then we don't put taxpayer dollars or action or or force behind the thing we say we care about. So do we really care about it? And she thought that that was disingenuous of us to continue to say we care about things without putting action behind it. And so that really opened my eyes to see that the left does message that caring about something means throwing taxpayer dollars at it, throwing government regulations and actions and force behind the issue. And so I hope we can really change what that means in young people's minds of what caring about something means, what coming up with solutions mean. It doesn't always have to be through taxpayer dollars and government action. Um, and I, I think that's a classic tactic of the left. And I talk about this in my speeches is the distortion of basic words and, and phrases by socialists throughout history to um, control the narrative. And so this is just a classic instance of being caring means using government to come up with a solution. Uh, there's so much there, and, and uh, I, I think, first of all, I mean, some of these people are not terrible people like your roommate. They're, they're just people that are a little naive, and they got off track, and they mean well, and yeah. for whatever well, the reason, they have I a terrible philosophy. Yeah, what I always say is we have to understand our enemy here. And yeah. our enemy is not the 70% of young Americans that claim they would vote for a socialist because chances are they're just a little liberal. They're falling for the lies of the left. They think they're being moral by advocating for these socialist policies and advocating against capitalism. Our enemy here 
is that group of radicals, the actual Marxists, the trained Marxists leading Black Lives Matter, the people of the Democratic Socialists of America who continue to say we'll end up like Denmark and Nordic Europe if we adopt their policies, but their policies are also to get rid of private business. These aren't making sense. It's very misleading for them. And I think that's because they have dangerous intentions for this country. They want to dismantle this country from the ground up and they don't like our founding documents. They don't like our founding principles. They don't like the founders who, who put so much work into building this great country. And that shows that they have terrible intentions. So we cannot be attacking the 70% of young Americans that say they vote for a socialist. We need to bring them to our side and we need to shut down the radicals who are using them as useful idiots right now. Well, Morgan, you're doing that better than anyone. Thank you so much for all that you're doing to fight uh, across the country for conservative principles of limited government and fiscal responsibility. And you're telling people exactly why socialism is wrong. Last thing I want to ask is, uh, how do people keep up with you? Um, what's your Twitter and Instagram handles? And um, how can they find you on YouTube and to watch some of your videos in the easiest way possible? Well, thank you. Uh, our pretty much the easiest way to keep up with us is on our Instagram. It's Young Americans Against Socialism or Yas underscore America. Um, all my social media is Morgan Zeggers. But if you go to fightsocialism.org, that's the best way to get involved with us. You can fill out the different forms to join as a writer or as an activist in the coalition, or you can help us create content as an intern. There's a bunch of different ways that we're growing the team. So we would just love to have as many people as possible. And it's, it's a quick thing if you want to dedicate an hour a week to helping us make some educational content in a peer-to-peer -peer style, we would love that. And I, I just thank you for giving me the platform to share that, Christian. Thank you. Well, again, thanks for all that you do. It was a pleasure to have you on. And I want to encourage everyone in the audience to give to this fine organization. And I want to encourage you to keep Texas red. We have so much to fight for in this upcoming election. So do everything that you possibly can. Uh, give to organizations like Morgan's. Uh, give to good candidates and block walk phone bank do the hard work to keep texas red it's so important uh, as texas goes as we like to say so goes the nation so let's hold the line and hold texas hold the nation uh, morgan thanks again uh, and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much for having me